Tonight I would like to talk about the meaning of a particular word in Pali. This word is idi. The meaning of the word, meaning of idi, is the particular power or potency of something. It's the fulfillment or completion of a certain power. For example, we could say that the idi of birds is the ability to fly. It's the particular power of a bird or the sense of fulfillment of function. The idi of an artist might say is the fulfillment of their creative talent. The idi of an athlete is their particular ability. Within the meditative context, another meaning of this word is the fulfillment or potency of psychic powers. That's another meaning of the word idis, the psychic powers that we read about. And there are many of these powers that can be developed through practice. There's the power of projecting multiple bodies. I mentioned some nights ago about the story of the dullard. And after his enlightenment, he became fully enlightened. With his enlightenment came all of these idis and that some of the tricks he played on his brother were the creation of hundreds of replications of himself in this forest grove, becoming invisible, walking on water, flying through air, walking through solid, solid walls. Now, when we hear of these, there's often a kind of amused nod of the head But actually, these powers can be realized. Munindraji, who was my first Dharma teacher in India, trained Deepama, this woman in Calcutta, in many of these powers after she had completed her Vipassana training and told amazing stories of what she did. That often she would just appear spontaneously in his room in front of him without actually walking through the door. Many, many stories. And so these powers are idis. They're they're potentials or potencies of the mind. There's a story of the Buddha's aunt uh, who raised him as a child. His mother died just after he was born. His aunt's name was Maha Pajapati. And she raised the young Bodhisattva. And she was the one who pressed him to create the order of nuns, to ordain women in the order. She quite quickly became fully enlightened, became an arhant. She was the teacher of many nuns. She lived to a very old age. I think she was about 120 when she died. And just before she died, she was going to pay her farewell respects to the Buddha. And the Buddha requested of her before she died to demonstrate some of her miracles, to inspire faith in people. And so, as it's told in the texts, she flew up into the air, you know, cross-legged and dove into the earth and did all of these things. I, the image of a 120-year-old little lady <laughs> doing this has always struck me as inspiring. <laughs> and then after she, you know, she showed the power of her mind, she said uh, to the Buddha, okay, may I go in peace now? And uh, then she died.
And so these powers were both recognized and practiced and attained, both in the time of the Buddha and up until the present day. These are idis. The Buddha also saw the danger in these kinds of psychic powers. Because he saw how people who were unenlightened could easily become attached to them. And he saw them as quite inferior to the idis of understanding. When he was asked about miracles and the power of miracles, the Buddha responded that the true miracle was awakening the understanding of the Dhamma, the understanding of truth. And so it really raises a question or suggests an inquiry for all of us into our own motivations in practice. Now, are we practicing for the idis of worldly success, you know, or being a certain way in the world, or prosperity? Or are we practicing for the idi, the power, the potency of understanding? In my early years of practice, when I first did the metta meditation, I was doing it as a samadhi practice. And I had done enough reading to know that these psychic powers come through samadhi. And so I'm doing, may all beings be happy, be peaceful. And my mind is fantasizing what I'm going to do with all these powers. You know, kind of fly through the window and impress my friends. (laughs) I never really had the opportunity to (laughs) test it. So what are the idis of understanding? I mean, when we, when we really come to a deep place of understanding in ourselves and seeing that although these idis of psychic power are possible, they're not really what the teachings are about at all. They don't effect any transformation of ourselves, of our minds. The Buddha talked of five idis of understanding which are the fulfillment of the Buddhist teachings. And the first of these, the first of these it is, is called the completion or fulfillment of a special understanding of the Dharma. Special knowledge of the Dharma. What this means is the very special and specific knowledge of all the constituent elements of the mind and body which constitute what we call self, what we call I. It's noticing and noting in each moment of experience the very unique elements of mind and body that are arising and passing away. And as we practice this idi of special knowledge of the Dhamma, as we practice this noting and noticing, we begin to develop a very profound and transforming insight, which is the insight of seeing that all of our experience, although we have myriad names and concepts and ideas about it, but that all of our experience comes down to processes of mental, physical phenomena arising and passing in each moment. In Pali, it's called Nama Rupa. Nama is mental phenomena, rupa is physical phenomena. The physical elements are quite easy to see. Now we feel it in the sensations in the breath, the sensations in the body, in movement. It's quite easy to understand the arising of these physical elements. 
our special knowledge of them, our special knowledge of these dhammas, this truth, is brought to a perfection when we begin to experience the physical elements free of concept. Just a very simple example, which I'm sure you all have experienced. The difference between feeling a sensation and thinking my knee hurts or my back hurts The difference between that and feeling the sensation and being aware of it as burning or pressure or tightness, whatever it may be. The first is a concept, is an idea, is a mental construct. The second is a special knowledge of the Dhamma. That is, we're seeing these physical elements exactly as they are, without a thought construct around it. We're seeing it directly and specifically. This is part of this first idea. The mental events, the mental elements are more subtle. These physical sensations, they're fairly tangible and with practice we begin to see them and feel them free of concept. To be aware of nama, of mental events, means being aware of thoughts in the mind of emotions, of moods, of mind states. And to be aware of them as mental events rather than being lost in the story, rather than being lost in the content. But even these mental events of thoughts and emotions and mind states and mental images are not the most subtle. Because even more refined than that in this special knowledge of the Dhamma is the awareness, the mindfulness of consciousness itself. That which is knowing the object, whether it's knowing a sensation or knowing a sound or knowing a thought. The Buddha described Nama Rupa, this happening of mental physical events, very succinctly when he said in his description of the all or the totality of experience, he said there's the eye, visible object and the knowing of it, ear sound and the knowing, tongue taste and the knowing, nose smell and the knowing, body sensations and the knowing. That in each moment, what we are is this pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising and passing away. There is no one behind that to whom it's happening. There's no self standing behind it who's owning this process of nama rupa, of knowing an object. Rather, what we are is this progression. In every moment, there's the arising of consciousness, of knowing with a specific object. It's seeing this clearly that is the fulfillment of this first idi, this special knowledge of the Dhamma. Seeing clearly into this insight of Nama Rupa, That in each moment of experience, what there is, is knowing and a particular object. The object may be physical, physical sensation. The object may be mental, like a thought or an emotion. When we don't have this discriminating awareness, when we don't see clearly this knowing an object or nama and rupa, what happens is that we lump it all together and create a sense of self. I'm feeling angry. I'm tired. My leg hurts. We create a sense of I. We create the sense of self because we're not seeing that all there really is 
is the arising of consciousness and an object in a particular moment and passes away and then a new moment of knowing an object. There is a fairly direct gateway to this insight, this insight into Nama Rupa. And that gateway is through the technique of mental noting. And the way it works, when we're noting an object, for example, rise and fall, It's fairly clear, it's fairly obvious that the rising movement is one thing, that the rising movement is physical, and that the noting mind is mental. We can understand, I think, quite clearly and distinctly that the noting is different than the actual movement, that the movement is physical and that the noting is mental and that the two can be happening just together. So that insight is like a gateway or an entrance to a further understanding that not only is there the noting of the object, but there is also the knowing of the object. And so the knowing is just another step, another level of subtlety. But when we see the difference between noting and the object, right there, there's nama rupa, there's mental physical phenomena. We just take it to the next step. Along with the noting, there's also a knowing. And we bring our mind, we bring our attention to these dual processes. In every moment, there's a rising and the knowing of it. There's an in-breath, which is physical, it's just physical elements, and also the knowing. There's a movement. The arm moves, the leg moves, that's physical. Along with it is the knowing. And we do this moment after moment until we really see that that is all there is. There is no I, there's no self behind this process. What we are is the sequence, is this progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. This is the first idi, the special knowledge of the Dhamma, and it really is a very powerful transformation of our understanding. It takes us out of the realm of conventional worldly understanding of things. We're no longer caught or imprisoned in the world of appearance, in the world of concept. We're actually seeing what is arising and passing in each moment. That what's there is Nama Rupa. No I, no self, no person. This is a powerful transformation for us. The second idi, the second fulfillment of understanding of the Buddha's teachings, is the completion or fulfillment of our understanding of dukkha, of suffering. The unsatisfying characteristic, or the unsatisfying nature of conditioned changing phenomena. How do we experience this? Not just to contemplate it theoretically, but what is the actual experience of dukkha? By now you could probably write a book (laughs) on the experience of dukkha. There are many ways that we begin to touch the truth of this very directly for ourselves, not, not as some theoretical knowledge. One way is quite obvious. That is the very clearly painful experiences. There's pain in the body, there's pain in the mind. We feel it like that, we know it. 
that this is suffering, this is painful. The Pali expression for it is wonderful. It's called dukkha dukkha, the suffering of suffering. Another experience, because this truth is very profound, you know, an opening to it is an essential part of the spiritual journey. Sometimes people have the wish or the hope you know, that the spiritual unfolding is just of bliss and joy and light and rapture. You're in the wrong place. <laughs> As that can come at times. But a lot of it is really opening to the truth of suffering. You know? So one way we experience it is through dukkha dukkha, just painful feelings. The other way, or another way we experience it, is when we become increasingly attuned to the endless process of momentary change. That things are arising and passing and arising and passing continually without stopping. And there are times when that is so clear that this process of Nama Rupa is going on and on and on and on. It's like water over a waterfall that just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming without end. There's no rest to it. And so when we get very attuned to this endlessness of the process of change, we begin to feel very deeply the unsatisfying nature of this process because there's no place to rest. The process itself is continually disappearing and changing. At one point in my practice, I had this very strong sense of being a prisoner of knowing. Because just every moment there was just knowing another object, knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, knowing a taste, a touch, a thought, over and over again. And what's so amazing is that there are only six things we ever know. <laughs> the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and mind objects around and around and around and around Munindraji used to say one of, one of his lines was where is the end of knowing where is the end of seeing where is the end of hearing so when we get this sense you know, of the endlessness of it we begin to sort of appreciate another aspect of what dukkha means, this unsatisfying quality, because it doesn't come to completion, it doesn't come to rest. There's another way we experience dukkha. It has a bit of a gruesome image to describe it, but after Halloween, I think it's probably appropriate. And that is just the dukkha of the dukkha of contact as being continuous impingement. And it's just like object continually impinging on the mind. And the image used is that of a skinned cow and how a skinned cow would feel as things land on it. <laughs> it's dukkha. It's definitely dukkha. There are times in the practice where it just feels we, we get so sensitive, you know, to the actual process of what's happening that we feel it like that. Let me hasten to add that we don't stay in that perception. It's <laughs> things, again, get, can get very smooth and very light and very pleasant. But it opens us to a very important perspective. We really see for ourselves, and again, this is not theoretical knowledge. This is what 
we experience at times. It's one particular perspective that we go through as we open up, as we learn about the nature of this process of mind and matter, of nama rupa, of constant change. It takes quite a bit of time and quite a bit of courage to continue looking, to really be willing to open ourselves to deepening experiences of dukkha, of unsatisfying, the unsatisfying nature. Because we keep looking and we're, we're conditioned, our culture conditions us to keep looking for refuge in much more conventional ways. And we look for refuge in different forms of security, look for refuge in pleasurable feelings, look for refuge in things that in their nature we know are not going to last, look for refuge in transient phenomena. But as we become clearer, as we become more open, not to, not to a projection of this on experience and not to creating it through expectations, simply opening to watching the process reveal itself. We really see for ourselves the unreliability of phenomena because it's all momentary, whatever it is. It's there for a moment and is gone. At the moment of death, what is it that really belongs to us? What is it that we could say, yeah, this is me, this is lasting, this is who I am, this is not going to change? What's interesting about this particular idi, this idi or fulfillment of understanding dukkha, of understanding suffering, is that in our lives it actually brings us a great lightness and peace. You know, and until people experience this for themselves, they hear about suffering and imagine that the more we open to it, the more gloomy we get or the more we will suffer. And it's exactly the opposite. The more we open to the truth of it, can open to it and feel it and see it accurately and clearly, it actually creates a tremendous lightness and spaciousness in our minds. Because we are no longer driven in our lives by compulsive desires, by compulsive greed, by compulsive wanting. We're no longer so addicted. We can really relax, settle back into the arising moment. We're not so driven. So this is the second of the idis the bringing to fulfillment this understanding of suffering. The third of the idis, the third of the fulfillments of the Buddhist teachings is the fulfillment of abandoning the causes of suffering. What are the causes of suffering in our lives? The causes of suffering are kilesas, are the defilements. These kilesas of greed, of hatred, of fear, of envy, of jealousy, of pride, of conceit, of doubt, of restlessness, all the very familiar states of mind. These kilesas or defilements it's not that these forces in the mind make us bad that they make us suffer. 
These, that's why the word kilesa means torments of the mind. There are these qualities in the mind which torment it. And we know that. You know, as we pay attention, we know that when there's strong greed or strong anger or hatred or fear, that that is a cause of suffering. These kilesas work on different levels. The very powerful ones are the ones that are strong enough to actually cause very excessive behavior. What is translated, one of the Burmese translators called outrageous behavior. You know, when the kilesas are so strong that we get involved in killing and stealing and doing things that are clearly and obviously harmful to ourselves and to others. These are the forces that drive us to break the precepts. And the precepts really are about non-harming. It's not about moralistic behavior. It's about living in a non-harming, peaceful way. And so we see how strong the force of these gilesas are when they're strong enough to make, us, to make us do those kinds of actions. Kind of middle level of kilesas is when they're not strong enough to make us break the precepts, but still cause unwholesome mind states to arise. And the third level of the kilesas, of these causes of suffering, called the latent kilesas. That is, they're not operative in the moment, but the potential is there. It's like a seed with the potential to become a tree. Given the right conditions, these seeds sprout. In this fulfillment of abandoning the causes of suffering, a great emphasis is placed on the abandoning and uprooting of one particular kalesa. And it's the one that is considered the most dangerous. It's the one that is considered the roughest in the mind. And that is, we work to abandon or uproot the kalesa of the belief in self. Belief in I. Because it is this particular defilement of mind, this particular belief in self, in a permanent ego entity, that leads to so many misconceptions and misunderstandings of who we are of what our life is about, of what is of value. And so many actions in our lives are based on this misconception. And so the root of so much suffering for us and for the world is rooted in this self-belief, this belief in self. Because it tremendously empowers and solidifies the identification with every passing thought, every passing emotion. And all the actions that follow from that, all the unreflecting actions that follow from that. We are fulfilling this idea of the abandoning of the causes of suffering very strongly in intensive practice. It's really working very precisely on, on, this, on this particular aspect. Because mindfulness acts like radar in the mind. And we're going along and watching the breath and watching things. And then an unwholesome state of mind arises, an unskillful state of mind of greed or hatred or fear or whatever. When the mindfulness is strong, we see it. We see it as it's arising. 
we're able not to identify with it. Not to take it as self, not to take it as I. We're not feeding it, we're not condemning it. We're simply seeing it as another part of the passing show. It's really the power at that time of bare attention. And so there's the very direct experience in that moment of selflessness. We see that these thoughts, these feelings, these emotions don't belong to anyone. They're not I, not self. They're simply arising out of conditions in the moment and passing away. I'd like to read you something which is from a 14th century Japanese samurai. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful poem and it just again points to the universality of our undertaking. When you think of us sitting in Bari in the 20th century and this 14th century samurai in Japan, this is what he says. I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence and righteousness my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. That's what we're doing. The first idi of the Buddhist teaching, the first fulfillment of it, is that special knowledge of the Dhamma, knowledge or insight into Nama Rupa. Second idi of the Buddhist teachings is the fulfillment of our understanding of dukkha, our willingness to open to the truth of that. The third idi is the fulfillment of abandoning the causes of dukkha. Abandoning the defilements, abandoning the kalesas. Especially this kalesa of self. The fourth idi or the fourth fulfillment of the Buddhist teachings is realizing the end of suffering. It's putting down the burden. We get different glimpses of this all along the way in our practice, even if we have not yet completely put down the burden. All along the way, we get tastes of what this is. Very genuine realizations of it. One taste that we get, which comes very often in the course of our practice, is when we experience the mind free of defilement, free of kalesa. And in that regard, one of the sayings of the Buddha is a moment of mindfulness is a moment of nibbana. Because in a moment of mindfulness, there's no greed, there's no grasping, there's no aversion, there's no delusion. We're not lost. We're not identified with it. There's just the purity of that moment's experience. 
to get a sense of what that taste of freedom actually feels like, it becomes obvious when we watch the transition point. As an example, watch the transition between being lost in a thought and the feeling of being lost, that feeling of identified involvement. It's a kind of contraction into the thought. Pay attention to that moment when we're in the thought, lost in it, and then wake up to it. What does the mind feel like in that moment? It's like that moment of letting go, of waking up. It's stepping out of the movie of our minds. And there's a taste right in that moment of the end of suffering. Watch very carefully. The mind is filled with anger or filled with desire or filled with restlessness or doubt or any, any of the defilements. And watch very carefully in that moment when that kilesa disappears, when we come out of it. It was very interesting for me, particularly in working with desire because there's a patina of enjoyment with desire. You know, it's like we think we're enjoying it. It's often associated with pleasant things. But to watch very carefully that moment when the desire leaves, and it's so clear that the being caught in it relative to the letting go of it, that being caught in desire is a kind of tightness. The desire goes and it's like mental sigh of relief. There's a moment of peace. This is a real taste of freedom for us. It's a real taste of the end of suffering. And we get this so many times in the course of our practice. Don't undervalue them. Really watch to see how often our minds are in that place. This is the fourth idi of the Buddha's teachings. There's a stage in practice, a stage of insight, which is called uh, the stage or level of high equanimity, where the mind is resting for long periods of time in a kalesa-free state, where there's a, a tremendous purity of mind and this great equanimity where there is no reaction of grasping or aversion. And it's said in the text that that state of mind is actually the state of mind of an arhant. And so even before we may reach full enlightenment, just in the course of our practice, we can get a very clear taste of what freedom is, what the end of suffering is. The third meaning, or a third exploration of this idea It's the freedom in the moment from defilement. It's this place of deep equanimity. And the third is the going beyond of conditioned phenomena altogether. The fifth iti, the last of the iti's, the last of the fulfillments of the practice, is the fulfillment of the development of the path the path to the end of suffering. And we've talked about it in so many ways. The Buddha characterized it as the Eightfold Path or the Middle Way. It's the development and the fulfillment of sila, the power of morality, of not harming, really refining that power. The fulfillment of samadhi, which includes effort and mindfulness and concentration which is so much of the work that's being done here. It's the strengthening and development of these factors of mind. We strengthen the effort factor. We strengthen the mindfulness. We strengthen the concentration. And it brings us to the fulfillment of the path. And we fulfill the wisdom. We fulfill the wisdom in two ways. We see very clearly and accurately what it is that's arising in each moment. This is the power of 
the moment-to-moment noting. We're, we're seeing accurately the breath, a sensation, a thought, a sound, an image, moment after moment. We're not deluded. We begin to understand this nama-rupa, that in each moment there is only knowing and an object, that there's no one behind it. We begin to see very clearly the impermanence. We see over and over again things coming and going. It becomes so clear, so undeniable. Out of the wisdom of seeing the impermanence, we understand the unsatisfying nature, the unreliable quality. We understand the selflessness, that things don't belong to anyone. This whole process of nama-rupa is empty phenomena rolling on. These are the fulfillments. These are the idis. This is the completion of the Buddha's teachings. The special knowledge of the Dhamma the completion of our understanding of suffering, of dukkha, of abandoning the causes of suffering, of realizing the end of suffering, and developing and bringing to perfection the path. And as you can see, what we're engaged in here is precisely the development of these idis. This is our practice bringing these to fulfillment. I think the phrase that is among the most inspiring to me in the texts, it's it's one that's used very often as people attain realization. The phrase that's often used is, done is what had to be done. Whenever I see that or read it or hear it, how nice that must be. (laughs) Done is what had to be done. No more three-month courses. (laughs) It's finished. (laughs) The question for us, big question for us, is this possible? And if it's possible, what is needed for us? How can we do this? How can we accomplish this? You know, and it has been accomplished from the Buddhist time until the present day. People have done this. With characteristic clarity and depth, the Buddha explained what are the bases for this success, for this accomplishment. And he talked about the four bases, the four roads to power. They're called idipadas. That is the path or the road for the accomplishment of the idis, for the accomplishment of these powers, for the accomplishments of this fulfillment. And each of these four roads to power, roads to fulfillment, reflect a different quality of personality. And so we can each find that quality in ourselves, which we've either developed or we see beginning to develop, and then work from our place of strength, work from this basis for success with the particular quality of personality that we respond to, that we have in ourselves. Often people think that Dhamma practice makes one dispassionate, very cool, without passion. 
But each one of these four roads to power, or four bases of success, are actually the embodiment. Each one of these four qualities is the embodiment of a very great life-fulfilling passion. Because this is a very great undertaking. People without fire, without passion, cannot accomplish this. It's not the it's not the passion of lust. It's not the passion of greedy desire. It's the passion of a tremendously deep commitment. The first of these qualities is the quality of it's translated often as zeal. It's just the kind of personality that has this strong desire to do, desire to accomplish, desire to attain something. And it really is a tremendous root of success. It's the feeling when we have that, when we're that kind of person, there's the feeling that arises in us, nothing can obstruct me. I have so much interest, so much zeal in accomplishing this, there's no obstruction that can stand in the way. It's this very strong, unwavering sense of purpose. You know, and we see it, we see this quality very, very much in just worldly pursuits. We see it in great musicians or great athletes or, who just have this strong desire to do something, to bring something to perfection and are very willing you know, to train long hours, to devote their lives to it. You know, they have found in themselves this road to success, this basis of success. It works also for the accomplishment of the idis, of our Dharma understanding. The second road to success, or the second basis of power, the second quality of personality is that quality of effort. And this is the kind of person who has this very strong quality of the heart that is actually challenged by difficulty. You know, with this kind of person who has this strength of heart, the thought comes, if something can be accomplished by effort, I can do it. And so it's a tremendously empowering quality. With this kind of person, difficulties do not present sort of an overwhelming obstacle. They simply present a challenge to meet. And it actually raises the energy. It raises the inspiration. The prospect of putting forth great effort for this kind of person, even for months or years, is not a problem. Because it's that very quality in them of effort which inspires them. That becomes the great challenge. And the Bodhisattva, before he became Buddha, very much embodied this particular, this particular basis for success. One of, the, one of the quotations attributed to him, and it, again, it personifies or it embodies this particular quality. If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. <laughs> and that's tremendously strong. You know, when people have that in them, anything can be accomplished. Buddhahood can be accomplished. Yeah. And so this becomes a basis for success, a basis for fulfillment. It's the third one. 
Maybe you haven't quite found your little niche yet. (laughs) The third road of power, the third road of success for fulfillment in the teachings of the Buddha is that strength of mind, that tremendous strength of mind, which comes from love of the Dhamma. It's that quality of the heart and the mind which is so strong and so steady because it's always inclining towards the Dhamma. It's inclining towards the fulfillment of the it is. Now, it's just like when we're in love. Our minds and our hearts are filled with thoughts and feelings about this person. So they they come to dominate our lives. In the same way, we can derive tremendous strength of mind from this love of the Dhamma. That that becomes the dominating force. It's as if we become absorbed in this love of the Dhamma. And nothing else is of equal importance. And you can see from this energy, again, we can accomplish anything. It becomes the basis for us of attainment, of fulfillment. And the last of these idipadas, the last of these roads to success, roads to completion, It has to do with that quality of personality, or that personality type, which is very interested and strong in inquiry and investigation. That's philosophical in the truest and deepest sense of the word. That just has this tremendous interest in understanding deeply the most profound aspects of life, the most profound aspects of the Dhamma. You know, and there are certain types of minds that becomes so inspired by that kind of investigation that delights in the examining of the, of the deepest and most profound questions about the nature of this round of samsara, of birth and death and rebirth, an investigation into the suffering and the causes of suffering and the abandonment of it. It's the kind of mind that looks deeply and investigates deeply. You know, and it's analogous in a more mundane sphere. If you think of the very great scientists who are just wrapped in the investigation of the frontiers of knowledge, you know, and the excitement of that and the, the hold of that because of that level of interest. So this also becomes a basis for us in our practice. If we have any one of these four, whether it's this quality of simply a strong desire, a strong motivation to do, nothing gets in our way. Or it's that quality of being inspired by challenge, inspired by difficulty to put forth the effort where effort itself becomes the inspiring factor or whether it's a love of the Dhamma and it's this love of the Dhamma which holds us right here or whether it's this quality of investigation, of inquiry any one of these can become the root for us can become the basis, can become the road of power, of real power, of understanding. So can we be inspired by what is true and by discovering what is true? and to work for the completion of these idis, the completion of these understandings. 
realizing again, reminding ourselves again, that we don't do this for ourselves alone. And we're working for the liberation of our own minds and the liberation of all beings. And it starts here. It starts with our own work. It starts with our own understanding. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.